G'day, welcome to another episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast, where I've got Chris Thompson-Lang joining me today. Now, uh, Chris has got a great story to share, not only through his journey um, through the military, both through the ranks and his uh, progression across to being an officer, but um, for me, what's really interesting is Chris fell in love uh, with yoga after, you know, military and how that's, you know, been a part of his journey uh, before leading him into the corporate world where he is today. So, Chris, welcome. Thanks, Pete. It's good to talk to you. Mate, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Um, mate, we crossed paths uh, in the Army many years ago. I always like to start the story with why did you even get into the Army in the first place? What took you there? Well, they say that there's three types of people that join the military. It's the mercenaries, missionaries, and misfits. And I was probably uh, a mercenary to start off with. I just didn't like the idea of uh, going to university and sort of living frugally. Uh, didn't want to go to TAFE. Didn't really want to uh, stay in the town that I was in. So the military seemed like a good option. And what town was that growing up? Uh, I finished high school in a place called Casino, Northern Rivers, New South Wales, and uh, took off from there, went down to Sydney while I waited to get into the Army. So, Mate, I spent, yeah. some, I spent a lot of time in the Northern Rivers, but just on the other side of Lismore, like the Ulsterville, Byron, sort of Wardell side of the road, but Casino is definitely the other side of a beautiful, beautiful town, the beef capital of New South Wales, if I remember. Beef capital of Australia, mate. The beef capital, oh, mate. The Rocky people will be chest poking you on that one. That's right. I actually get up to Rocky a bit and I remind them regularly. <laughs> you were on the posh side. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. But even though that, that was a part of my life where I was a cut flower grower, mate. So a random, uh, random different pathway to where I am now. But coming back to your point, missionaries, misfits, and mercenaries. Well, one of the things that military taught me, I definitely wasn't a mercenary. I'm, I'm far too soft for that. Um, misfit, I was a little bit sort of straighty 180 apart from a couple of little deviances, but uh, maybe I have to be the missionary uh, save the world category. So, yeah, um, nice. so, so so you've escaped casino and you ended up, um, went to Kapuka? Yeah. Yeah. So I was down there in, uh, it was April 2001, uh, jumped on a, a bus from Sydney and headed down to Kapuka. A, what, was that, what was that experience like? I actually loved it. You know, I, I grew up um, with a pretty strict family, uh, worked hard out on a farm on a cattle station out near Casino. So, you know, hard work, early mornings, that sort of thing didn't really bother me. It was really an adventure. Uh, I enjoyed the learning experience. I enjoyed the challenge. So I had a great time at Kapuka. Yeah. Um, for those, Kapuka is the soldier training school. So if you join the ranks sort of day one, you turn up Kapuka and learn all the basics of being uh, a general soldier. Mate, after you left Kapuka, what, which path did your career take after that? Yeah, so I went on to the School of Military Engineering in Moorbank at the time. Um, so it was, you know, initial employment training for combat engineers. And I was actually at the school when the Twin Towers we hit so September 11 and that really changed the whole dynamic of everything we were doing you know we went straight from IETs to uh, across the road to what's now known as the Special Operations Engineer Regiment uh, it was the Incident Response Regiment at the time and we went straight into doing um, high research 
chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, uh, high yield explosive training, uh, really focused on that counterterrorism piece. Um, for those that don't know what a combat engineer does, apart from that um, that high end search stuff, it's all. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's all about mobility and survivability. How do we help our forces, you know, gain access and clear pathways, and how we also deny the opposition from having clear pathways to us? Yeah, that's right. So there's the the mobility, counter mobility. So a lot of um, clearing routes. Uh, if you think about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment with um, landmines, you know, it's the engineers that are out in front clearing those mines. It would be engineers laying mines, um, but then building bridges, blowing bridges up. Uh, there's also the survivability, sustainability piece, which is like water purification, uh, force protection, building infrastructure. So a whole range of things. But, uh, yeah. We really focused on that mobility, counter mobility. And was that your first posting into the Incident Response Regiment? Uh, no, so I wasn't actually posted there. I ended up going up to uh, the second combat engineer regiment in Brisbane at Anogra. Uh, but what they were doing at the time in response to September 11, so they were putting all the uh, combat engineer initial employment through that high risk search training so that we were prepared to uh, deploy overseas straight away if we needed to. Because this is 2001. Um... Obviously, Afghanistan hasn't quite just started yet. I imagine we're probably, what, three, six months off before, if my timelines are right, actually kicking off. Yep. Um, Australia's sort of in and out of Iraq, you know, before round two of Iraq kicks off. Um, but in terms of when you got up to Brisbane into the regiment, how did you find the life of you know, being a young single digger kicking around with the lads? Yeah, it was uh, a pretty wild time, I guess. I was it was the first taste of freedom, post living at home and then uh, going through Kapuka and initial employment training. So I lived on base, uh, spent a lot of time in town at the Victory Hotel uh, in the downtime. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. You know, we we still had an active program of sport within the regiment. So you know, Tuesdays we're training, Thursday afternoons you're playing sport and and then going to the sporties afterwards for a couple of beers. And, yeah, it was a different culture back then. Plus not too far from the farm at Casino, if you had to sneak back a couple hundred Ks. Yeah, I don't think I did, actually. <laughs> but- <laughs> no, not going back. I, I, eyes forward only. Um, right. Okay, so unpack the next couple of years for us through your adventures through the ranks. Yeah, so I initially thought I wanted to study engineering and explored the thought of that. Um, was offered a, an electrician's course while I was there. And uh, they told me that, you know, I said, oh, yeah, what's that involved? And I said, well, you need to sign up for another six years. And uh, I remember saying to the the warrant officer who was looking after the trades, oh, I'm not I'm not doing that, you know, six years, that's such a long time. And uh, But I actually, uh, I fell into uh, the missionary category. So I, I sparked up a, a good friendship with our padre and you know he asked if i was interested in studying theology and so while i was a, a lance jack so i got a promotion to lance corporal uh, was a bit bored decided i'd go and study theology at the brisbane college of theology so i was doing that sort of part-time working full-time with the army and on my way to potentially being a chaplain 
and uh, you know a few things happened. Met a girl, um, my my CEO, um, CEO at the time was a staunch Catholic, and he thought that he was growing a priest, so he was supporting me to go and do the study and all of that. And you know, really great guy, um, but took a different turn. Decided to get married, and then the the sergeant major, the regimental sergeant major asked me if I'd be interested in going to Kapuka as an instructor. So I I went down there on promotion to full corporal and spent a year as an instructor in 2006. So I guess there's a few things that happened while I was in Brisbane. I forgot I actually went to Timor. So I was in East Timor at 19 uh, as a section to IC, doing all the, the search for the the routes, the motorcades, the accommodation for the independence celebrations in 2002 when Timor uh, gained independence from Indonesia. But, yeah, ended up down at Kapuka as an instructor. And, I, honestly, it felt like I'd only just left there as a recruit and I was back teaching recruits. So that was a bit of a, a mind bend, yeah. Back again teaching. It's funny you mentioned the um, the chaplaincy piece. Uh, when I was in Sydney, like I really had some, again, some great relationships with the padres and chaplains uh, at every unit that I'd been in. And I actually, you know, downloaded some information about potentially going into the chaplaincy stream myself. But um, it just, you know, it's funny, these little moments in life where you make a decision this way or that way, but um, no regrets about where, where I am or how I got here now. But it's, uh, it is... Um, I, I guess it's one of the things with the military, uh, unlike other profession, unlike other professions, or is that there is such a balance of purpose in what you're doing, and you know why? You know why are we even doing this? Particularly in the military, where there is you know, combat, off obviously you know, death and destruction around us, and asking why is a big important part of you know why we're in this career anyway. So, mate, you did your you did your deployment to Timor, um, a section uh, section two IC, and now you end up in uh, end up in Kapuka, the land of the the drill voice. Um, how did yeah, you feel? Funny. How did you feel actually from your experience getting off the bus into that you know that uh, the shock and awe of it versus actually taking people off the bus and running them through that program? Yeah, it's a funny one, Pete, because I I think because I'd only just been there you know, four or five years earlier, five years earlier. Um, I felt like I was just uh, emulating the instructors that I'd had. So it was kind of just just doing the same thing that they did. And the, the process, you know, come back to your business about trusting the process, it's all laid out. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's very well programmed. Uh, the... The lessons that are taught layer upon each other, and within a short space of time, you've turned a civilian into a soldier, and it's it's really quite remarkable how you can have that much impact in such a short period of time. One of the things I used to love doing uh, when I had the chance was going to the march out parades at Kapuka, and seeing the mums and dads, uh, their faces almost just astonished about you know when they're. Now, their sons and daughters march out on that final day in uniform, all sharp, and you know tears to be had and smiles everywhere. It is it is a special moment for a family. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's uh, you know I felt like I was quite a young instructor, 
Uh, I'd only just gotten married. I think I was 22 years old. And there's a lot of hardened, you know, combat core NCOs that were instructing alongside of me. And um, my section won the first competition out of the three platoons that did it. So it was 12 sections all up. And I was pretty happy about that. Really had very little to do with me. It was more the quality of the recruits that I had in my section. But uh, yeah, it was it was a good experience. So I only ended up doing that for for one year, and applied for Duntroon while I was at Kapuka. What made the uh, choice to go to the dark side and become an officer? The dark side, yeah. Um, I think it was the thought of uh, leaving Kapuka. I was I was supposed to be there for two years, and I would have left on promotion to sergeant. And I liked the the challenge of command. Uh, and as a a corporal, as a section commander, you have that relationship with your uh, your troops, and you're in command. And as a sergeant, you're more in a sort of support role. It's a really important support role, but it's you're not in command. So I thought the best step would be to pursue that command stream and, and head for lieutenant. It's a really interesting word, command. You know, like it's a word that we I don't often hear in the civilian world at all, but it is it's somewhat all consuming in the military world. You know, particularly, you know, um, if you do go into the officer stream, then everything is about the quest for the next command. You know, it's about your platoon command, your company command, your battalion command, your brigade command, even maybe one day the army or the CDF command in the ranks. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, section commander, that's your only true command, is it? Um, yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, you section in command as a, a lance corporal and then as a, yeah, a corporal, that's that's the only real true command. You're right. Yeah. Because it's an interesting thing because for me, um, any time that I was, you know, in inverted commas, in command, uh, it's not about the power. Or, or, or the prestige, but more the responsibility and mm. the as- assumed authority that goes with looking after these people and, and taking them on their journey to make them you know, better people, better soldiers. Um, mm. so, so now we've come across the Duntroon and, and you're on this stream. Um, what happened next? Which, where did you go to? Uh, so I spent 18 months at Duntroon. Um, as a, a baker, which you reminded me of the other day. Yeah. Uh, so, so, what, that, so just a quick one. So uh, yeah. when you go to Officer Stream, there's two ways you can do it. You basically to go to the Australian Defence Force Academy um, and they do a three-year academic degree and then they come across the hill, literally across a little hill, to the Royal Military College of Duntry and they do one year of uh, their like Army Command training. Uh, and they're called FACS, like... Um, F and ad for C's. And then on the other side, the people like uh, me that come straight off the street without a degree um, and just go straight into the military training only, we're called bakers, generally a little bit doughier than the than the, than the, uh, the facts that come across. So, yeah, my baker love, mate. I still don't have That's a degree, it. maybe one day. But... No, I went straight to postgrad. Don't mess around with that undergrad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 18 months at Duntroon. I, I guess it was a, an interesting initial six months, or they call it third class, because I'd come from Kapuka as an instructor. All of the 
the drill lessons, the weapons lessons, the, the basic military training that we covered in that first six months I'd just been teaching. So in a way, it was a bit of a holiday. Uh, it was an opportunity to, to get to know my classmates. Um, but there was, I guess, some frustration uh, in going through all of that again. Um, the second, second six months, second class, it was a bit more interesting. Uh, got to cut my teeth in some more challenging scenarios. And uh, as you remember, old Shaggy Ridge, the uh, yeah. food and sleep deprivation exercise, that was a, a good benchmarking activity. A good experience. Well, I'm I'm training for uh, the Oxfam 100 in, in in Sydney at the moment, which is basically a hundred kilometre walk in in one hit. And yeah. the only time I've I've done anything even nearly slightly towards that was was the Shaggy Ridge exercise. Um, but we got I think we had about four or five to do it, four or five days to do it with a little bit less tucker and a little bit less sleep. But um, that's right. It's it's interesting. <laughs> Third class, oh, you just roll through. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. Third class, you just roll through, super relaxed, you know, been here, done that. Whereas third class for me was like intimidating and daunting and like learning, drinking through the fire hose, like way out of my depth and like clinging on it, clinging on at the edges to get through it. Um, second class, third class, graduation, a couple of pips on your shoulder now as a lieutenant. Um, where did you get, where did you go to? So I ended up going back to engineers uh, and I went to Townsville to the second sorry the third combat engineer regiment um, and actually I, I lie i spent some time marking time first i went to the what, 17 construction squadron in sydney while i was waiting to do the initial employment or the regimental officers basic course uh, back at the school of engineers so anyway ended up after all of that going up to townsville and had the opportunity to lead the emergency response troop. Uh, so they had just been brought back into the regular army from special forces. Uh, so there was a bit of a, a transition challenge for those guys, but had you know, a great time. We won a heap of trophies throughout the year with competitions in the battalion, uh, in the brigade. And yeah, just, I thought that was going to be it. I thought that was my troop command time, but uh, then we had, uh, another rotation into Afghanistan for 3CR and I got the opportunity to take a second year as a troop commander and took a, a troop over to Afghanistan on Mentoring Task Force 3 uh, in 2011. So 2011, this is really um, probably the height or, you know, really at the peak of the of the war over there now. Which um, So which... Battalion were you supporting over there at the time? It was the second battalion. Okay, gotcha. Yes, yeah, so two um, area. So what's what is a troop commander in charge of a combat engineer team do in Afghanistan? I guess it comes back to that point about command. You know, there's that that responsibility, and for me, there was a responsibility to my men to make sure that they were prepared because um, as a an engineer group in Afghanistan doing the, the type of work we were in, in counterinsurgency. It was all around uh, force protection, so finding and removing explosive hazards from the battlefield. So it was all about uh, just being the most proficient we could be 
to make sure we're finding IEDs or improvised explosive devices and making it safe for friendly forces to move around the battlefield and, and mentor the Afghan National Army. Yeah, so I guess it's a, it was a sense of uh, responsibility for the protection of my blokes, but also the the company group that we were with up in the Chora Valley. And when yeah. we talk about, um, so when we talk about removing explosive devices, these are the lads who, for me, are almost, you know, part of the classic picture of Afghanistan, you know, walking down the road with metal detectors, basically putting themselves out the front to make it safe for everybody else coming behind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this is um, getting, getting ready to go over. You know, there was a lot of uh, pre-work done where we, that the guys had to be certified as searchers and it's the second highest dropout rate to special operations training. Uh, so pretty, pretty cutthroat, but important because of the, uh, the risk that was associated with the role. And you know, I remember going over heaps of uh, post-blast incidents where there'd been IEDs that had gone off, that had killed or wounded um, Australians and, and coalition forces. And yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't really know much about uh, vicarious trauma until many years later, but in a way, sort of going through all of that stuff, even prior to deploying, was really um, changing the way that I perceive the world. And yep. yeah, I guess, you know, we, if you don't mind me sharing a bit more about it, we, Please. when we landed in, uh, so we fly from Australia to Dubai, and it was the Al Minhad Air Base. And usually, sort of do a little bit more, a couple of days worth of um, briefing, country briefing there in Dubai before flying to Afghanistan. Um, but as soon as we landed, there was, uh, I think it was about 3, 3.30 a.m. local time. We went in, got a brief from the Joint Task Force Commander, which was um, Angus Campbell, who's now the Chief of Defence, and went and had breakfast at the mess after that. And, and then we went straight back out onto the airfield and had uh, a ramp ceremony for two Australians that had been killed in previous days. So it's Lieutenant Marcus Case and uh, Lance Corporal Andrew Jones. Uh, Marcus Case had been killed in an aircraft accident. And, uh, Andrew Jones had been killed in the first Australian insider attack with a, or green on blue, they called them. So Afghan soldier uh, turning their weapon on an Australian soldier. And we were actually, uh, so my troop was going out to where Andrew Jones had been killed by the Afghan soldier. So it was sort of pretty confronting to know that that's where we're heading and, and that was the risk that we faced. Not only uh, improvised explosive devices and small arms fire from the Taliban, but the, the possibility that the troops we were mentoring could, could turn on us. And this is, um, so... Not even in country yet. This is so in the safe place of Al Minhad in Dubai, where we do a couple of days of pre-deployment training before you actually get into country. This is really, hey, hey, lads, welcome to the welcome to the real game. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, th there was there was that which we sort of you know we all expected that that 
could be the case for any one of us. You sort of accept the fact that you, you might not make it. Um, but we, we headed out into the desert and uh, it was bloody hot. The, you know, the temperature gauge is nudging 50 degrees and we're wearing full body armour trying to do some live firing. Uh, the, the live firing serials didn't last too long. We were back in the shade you know, underwater. Crazy. Just so, yeah. just so hot. Hot like I've never experienced before. Just one little note, uh, Andrew Jones, um, for those that know Matt Mosley and I, um, you know, business partner and, and, and good mate, Andrew was uh, Matt's soldier in East Timor back. For some random reason, Matty got, he was in charge of the post office uh, in East Timor for a little while. So we had Andrew in there working with us and he was a cook, um, a great guy. And just really, it just sort of, you know, shook my world when I definitely, when I heard about that. So I didn't realize that that was actually the moment you're going in as, uh, um, as, as unfortunately Andrew came out in the way that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a reality now. This is, um, this is the, this is what happens when we go. And I've got to admit when I still, um, so first of all, individual experiences vary. I'm a logistics officer. I'm not a combat soldier. I wasn't outside the wire doing combat things. Um, but still, it's it's surreal. Um, and then all of a sudden, you, you jump on this plane, you fly over into Afghanistan. All of a sudden, they're like, "Right, put your helmet, put your helmet on now." And then the plane takes this most amazing landing that you've never, well, I've never experienced. Like, like what the fuck's going on here? You know, it doesn't just come down nicely; it goes all over the shop. And I remember when I first, uh, I don't know what I looked like because I got off the back of the plane. And some warrant officer came up to me, he goes, he goes, are you all right? And I was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Um, but literally, I don't know what I looked like for someone to walk up to me and say, are you okay? And I was just like, it was just, just you know, this is it now. This is your life for a couple of months. Yeah. So, yeah. so how long did it take for you to get out into the valley after you um, hit the ground in TK, Tarrancout? Yes. So we actually, before we left for Tarrancout, uh, the day after we did that ramp ceremony, uh, sadly we learnt of another Australian death, and uh, it was Sapper Rowan Robinson. So uh, Robbo had been in uh, Townsville with us the year prior, and he he then applied for the Special Operations Engineers and and went over, and he was supporting the Special Operations Task Group when he was killed. You know, first in to a compound, head down, searching for explosives, and, and unfortunately he caught uh, fire from the Taliban. Um, but he was, you know, well known, well loved within our troop. One of his um, best mates was one of my section commanders. So it, you know, really, he hit us like three deaths before we'd actually even got into Afghanistan. Um, Mate, but we had just- a. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Can I just unpack as the leader of the troop right now? What What are you doing here? Like, all eyes are pointed at you in terms of setting the conditions. How do you, as the leader, get these guys and girls ready? Sorry, were they all guys? Any females in the troop? Uh, All males. All males. How did you get the lads ready? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's, I, I remember feeling the weight of that at the time and just thinking, you know, what do I do here? And and this is the value of uh, sergeants and non-commissioned officers, especially senior non-commissioned officers, is that 
you know, you, you turn to them uh, for that sounding board. And so as a, even though I'd been in the military for quite some time, you know, for, for a lieutenant, uh, I still relied on a sergeant and another sergeant that was there uh, supporting engineers and had a talk to, to them about what to do. And, you know, we, we had a, a dinner at the mess. We got a, a carton of near beers, you know, because no alcohol. Printed out a, a picture of Robbo and put it at the end of the table. And, you know, we had we had a dinner in, in his memory and had the opportunity to say a few words. Uh, but then I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of, you know, this is, this is serious, so we've just got to switch on. And we left the next day and flew into to TK. And you're right, you know, you get get to that point where you're crossing the border into Afghanistan and you put your, your um, Kevlar on, your helmet, and, and take a pretty steep dive into the runway. But we, we landed in TK and uh, the first thing we did when we got off the plane was we lined up along the sides of the road and did the ramp ceremony for Rowan. So that was the third coffin, you know, heading back to Australia. And I just remember looking around at, at the guys and, um, you know, they were just game face. There was, it's almost like they'd, they'd done their, their thing in Dubai. And then we were just focused on getting out there. So we put Rowan on the the Herc to send back to Dubai. And then we went and got our uh, final bits of kit. And then I think it was the next day that we, we jumped in vehicles and headed out to our valley. And you know, it was about 35, 40 k's northeast of Tarankau up in the Chora Valley at patrol base uh, Mirawise. It's sort of the momentum, the momentousness, it's probably not a word, is is dawning on me here of what this initial experience is like. So not only the the challenge of seeing Australians coming back, but now you're on the ground, the lads saying goodbye on the plane to one of their mates going back. Um, and this is day fucking one. Mm. Right? And, and it's like, did you feel, you, you've said about game face, um, did you feel ready? Did you feel the lads like we're up, we're good? Had no choice. Had to be. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I did. I felt like we were the best prepared out of anyone, purely because we'd learnt the lessons of of all of those that had gone before us, and we had the opportunity to, um, you know, make adjustments that we needed to. We had the best possible training we could have had. Uh, so yeah. I did feel ready. It didn't. It didn't mean that it was easy, but uh, yeah, I had just ultimate trust in my section commanders and sappers that were working with me. Describe um, the Chora Valley for us and what it's like living out there. It's wild. You know, it's, uh, I actually just was watching some Overland videos uh, in Morocco recently. I'm, I'm planning my my trip and. Uh, it's a lot like the Chora Valley, just really steep mountains, rocky terrain, uh, open expanses of, of nothing. They call it the dashed or the, the desert. And then you have these little uh, valleys of green that run through where the, the water cuts through the landscape. And they call that the, 
the green zone. Uh, and that's where all the agriculture happens. Uh, so, yeah, it's just a, I'd say it's like biblical. Mm. Pretty, pretty wild seeing people walking around with, with donkeys and, and camels. Yeah. One of the things that amazed me about the landscape was number one, how stunningly beautiful it is. Mm. Now, you look up into the mountains and you think, oh, you know, you know, what an amazing, beautiful mountain. And then all of a sudden the, the clouds clear and there's another mountain range sitting behind that. Yeah. Um, and you're the God, I didn't even know that, you know, that those peaks just keep rising up and up. And the other thing that really sort of shocked me was there are no plants, you know, it's just rocks uh, apart from the green zone. There's no like trees or forests down the bottom. You've got, you know, the, like you said, the little strip, maybe a hundred to 500 meters wide, but that's it. That's yeah. it. So how many months um, you're spending in the valley now? Uh, so it's just over eight, eight, eight and a half months. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's it was, daily life? Sorry, after you? Yeah, I was thinking it was, it was sort of right into the thick of it. So they talk about fighting season, uh, which is the summer months in Afghanistan. So we, we got there in June, which is summer, uh, and did our handover with – mentoring task force two and they left so we're just i guess on high alert um, the biggest concern that i had for our blokes is that they got comfortable um, that that you know they get used to searching certain routes or it would become sort of routine and then the risk is complacency you know where you need to get it right every day taliban only needed to get it right once and uh so we're just sort of constantly reinforcing within each other the importance of, of buddy checks and, and just being completely present. And, you know, very early on in our trip, there were some uh, some patrols in contact uh, and we had some early successes um, killing some of the Taliban there and, it sort of changed the way that the rest of our trip unfolded, I think. There was a lot less um, small arms attacks because, you know, the infantry guys that were with us from Tuaria, um, each contact they got into, it was, you know, one and over. So a uh, lot less shooting at us and a lot more focus on improvised explosive devices, hundreds hundreds found in our trip um, heaps and heaps of caches so weapons and explosives that were hidden and you know we had five five strikes where you know they were missed um, and, and vehicles were blown up um, some we got lucky they didn't they uh, what we call deflagrate rather than detonate so the explosive burns up really hot heat rather than a, an explosion um, but yeah it was it was um, every day was an adventure <laughs> man I just can't like I said individual experiences vary and um, you know I just you know when people when when I was there man my experience um, and I'm not being facetious was about a warm bed uh, a cappuccino and a piece of yellow cake from the little cafe there and I just want to really one of the um, things that you know, why I'm so passionate about, you know, veteran entrepreneurship and veteran businesses is because the lads like yourself and the lads that you commanded, 
um, man, it's just such a bold, life-altering, um, you know, I just can't even, I can't even, even though I know more than most, I just you know, can't even fathom what it's like on a day-to-day basis to do this stuff. So can I just ask you to share as much as you'd like to about that trip, you know, for your own for your own sake and for the sake of lads, your lads on your team, tell the stories you want to tell, but I want to get into frontline yoga and, and what this is about. So take your time sharing about the trip, but, uh, and, then, and let's talk about how frontline yoga is, um, you know, changing you and, you know, changing people around you. Yeah. I think there's, there's two things that really stand out to me. And one I tended to focus on historically, and it was around some you know, significant incidents where we had, mass casualties and deaths, you know. There was there was a device that went off that um, hit a dual cab ute that was carrying seven Afghan national police. And unfortunately, you know, they were all killed. So that was a fairly confronting experience. And then there was another one sort of later in our trip where um, some villagers were, were travelling through an area that was impassable and, and detonated a device that was laid by the Taliban and, you know, it, it killed and wounded civilians. Um, so, I, you know, I won't, I won't go into that too much, but one thing that I did that I wasn't really conscious of at the time, but I look back and I think I, I created a, an emotional barrier between myself and my troops. So, you know, we had a professional relationship. I cared about them. But to protect myself, because we had such a high rate of engineer deaths, um, I just tried not to get too attached. I I took a really sort of hard-nosed approach. And I remember there was one of our... um, one of our guys who had been promoted just before going over, you know, he was a really top quality sapper, was given the responsibility to to leave a search team. And I just rode him, you know, I was, I was on his case all the time. Every time he sort of made a, a wrong move, which really wasn't wrong. He just made decisions. Um, yeah, I was on his case and I sort of, I think back and I go, you know, I just wanted to make sure that he lived and that his blokes lived. Um, but it's it's hard to reflect on now. So I think um, my approach in management, my approach in leadership now is a lot more uh, connected, a lot more empathetic. Um, so just an interesting one to sort of look back. And it, it was less about, um, you know, how I thought I needed to be. It was more about just protection for myself psychologically and emotionally do you feel that you had um with that not isolation but protection there's the barrier between you and those under your command you know they always talk about leadership in these situations being really lonely did you have how did you did you have connection with the other peers you know in the officer ranks like did you find how did you personally this is a long time, man, eight and a half months. It's, it's a long, long time uh, of day in, day out, this pressure. How, how did you feel yourself at these times? Yeah. There was one uh, senior section commander that was actually the, the guy who was best mates with Robbo. Um, he'd been over before, you know, he was, 
ready for promotion to sergeant. And I was looking forward to sort of relying on him as a bit of a confidant. And he actually got picked up and pulled out and put into another valley with these guys. Um, so I didn't see him for the whole time. Uh, so I, I felt his absence. Um, but I had a good relationship with our um, S6. He was had actually been um, seconded in as a signals officer, but he was a an infantry officer from 3RER, who you'd know. Um, <laughs> so Rob, we we spent a lot of time together, and I think he was my greatest sort of support over there. And yeah, so you're right; it is important. Uh, to have that, to have a sounding board, just to have those close connections. We we had a little, uh, the the OCC, which was the old C's Coffee Club. Um, but you may know Dave Savage. So Dave was a, a civilian over there, seconded to AusAid, and he was sort of doing a lot of work with um, just checking on aid funding and how that was being spent on projects. So he was, I'd say, the unofficial leader of the OCC. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, sadly, he, he got blown up by a suicide bomber um, in, it would have been February or maybe March, just mm. after I'd left Afghanistan. You know, he's, he's in good shape now. I saw him last week. He spent nine years in a wheelchair um, with multiple surgeries and a lot of hard rehab, but he's he's up with an exoskeleton uh, leg now and walking, which is great. Um, so I guess to come back to the question of frontline yoga is there's these you know, really intense experiences that you have uh, throughout life. You know, it might be war, uh, it might be the, the family environment that you grow up in. It could be a, uh, an assault or a car accident, you know, anything. Life life throws a lot of um, traumatic experiences at us, a lot of challenging experiences. And there's this potential for those experiences to sort of rewire our neurology, change the way that the brain responds to the environment, you know, relational environment, the external environment even your own internal environment. And, you know, that happened. That happened to me. I, I fell off the wagon, as they say. Um, after coming home, I was in Townsville as a operations officer, sort of planning training and doing programming, that sort of thing. And, and I heard on the radio that there'd been an Australian civilian um, blown up. And, you know, through the whole trip, I knew that there was a there was intelligence warning that in our valley there were two children being trained as suicide bombers. You know, it was a persistent threat that we we're always aware of. Uh, and I was at home and I, I had no control over what was going on over there. Couldn't couldn't do anything. The only thing I could think of is you know that that had happened to Dave, and I just sort of questioned the quality of my handover to the engineer that came in to take over from me. I thought, you know, I should have given him more. So I had this feeling of, 
you know, responsibility. It was already, um, you know, I was having sort of disturbed sleep and a fair few stress responses from the other incidents that had happened overseas. And but it was it was Dave hearing that on the news and knowing, you know, because they said where it was, knowing he was the only Australian civilian out there, that it was, you know, ninety nine percent chance it was him. Uh, and it just rocked me. Yeah. Is this was this the I guess the the start of the transition? It's like time, you know. This I'm done. I've done my bit. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know it at the time. I, I thought that, you know, career was everything. But when I look back, it really was the start of the transition. You know, it was getting to that point where the quality of my work uh, wasn't as good. You know, I wasn't as focused. I was struggling with concentration and brain fog and, and all of that. It, I relied uh, on alcohol a fair bit. I was finding that if I heard, you know, there was children involved in, in one of the incidents overseas and if I heard my kids crying or upset, it would just send me into this bit of a spiral you know i wouldn't say it was a flashback but my heart rate would go up respiratory rate i'd start sweating you know i was just in this um, survival mode fight and flight you know i now know that that's the the sympathetic nervous system doing its job to keep you alive and um, keep you mobilized but at the time it was scary and i just remember thinking you know the the only escape for me at the time was to, to drink and the only way I could get to sleep was to drink and um, pass out. But that that led to some pretty significant challenges in my personal life. You know, I ended up uh, going through a separation and then divorce. It was when I'd moved to Canberra uh, from Townsville, my ex-wife had moved to Canberra as well and I was living alone, hardly seeing the kids just going through the motions with work and I just knew that something needed to change and was on my way to the pub one afternoon. I only had 20 bucks left before payday <laughs> and uh, just by chance walked past a sign in Kingston in Canberra that had um, $20 for 10 days of yoga and I just thought I'll give this a crack. So walked up the stairs went into my first class. And was this, so prior to this, your, uh, or how do I say this? You, the tools that you have at your disposal to manage everything that's going on, both, you know, emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, spiritually, um, there was just a great lacking in how you could actually get the tools to get through. Tell me about what yoga um, did because it's yoga's in front of all of us every single day, you know. But it's a uh, it's a pretty, you know, it's like is it a hippie thing? Is it like a, is it a Hindu thing? Like I'll come back to my yoga experience shortly. But tell me what yoga's done for you. Yeah. So I guess in that very first class, uh, it gave me a bit of a circuit breaker. It was it was something different to go into the pub. Uh, the reception was nice and warm. You know, I was looked after by the person that 
that taught the class. But then in in the 90 minutes of doing the class, I was just trying to focus on not snapping myself. Uh, and what I realised afterwards that I'd just spent 90 minutes focused on instructions and moving my body, moving breath, and I hadn't thought about what I perceived as failures in Afghanistan or failures in my relationship. So those ruminating thoughts, I, I got a break from them during the class and it was significant enough for me to turn up the next day and the next day and do the 10 days and then sign up for a six-month um, subscription. And it led to 18 months straight of daily practice where it gave me a break from my mind. And, you know, physically there was great benefits. My flexibility improved. I was running faster. You know, I was, I was recovering better from PT. But, yeah, it was really it was the psychological benefits that made the most difference. I'm going, to, I'm going to show a level of my immaturity here, but yoga f- for me, particularly when I was in the army, was either not something a soldier did. It might have been, you know, like women in the eastern suburbs of Sydney or, you know, if uh, you know, more alternative people, you know, having a bit of a stretch. But I really didn't feel like that was my form of exercise. Now, like for me, exercise is either team sport, running, physical, weights, and for me, yoga just didn't really, so I didn't quite understand. I didn't sort of connect with it or see how I fitted into that picture. Like, okay, a very immature response. But did you know any other soldiers that, because you were the first one that I heard of that like, man, he's doing, Chris is doing yoga. What's with that? Yeah. Uh, there was one other guy that I knew of, and he was a, a Kiwi uh, that I went through engineer officer training with. Uh, he was a dead set weapon and yep. he did yoga regularly and we all gave him shit about it. Uh, <laughs> but he was just on a, a new level. Uh, so I, I, I take your point and it was, I guess, surprising for me. Uh, I talked to a lot of people that I worked in the small team with about it, how, how good I was feeling. But there is that issue and I guess this is what led to frontline yoga is that I noticed the benefits and I started to meet other people that were noticing the benefits from a uniform background but there was a lot of strange practices out there there's a lot of foreign things that happened in yoga classes Um, so it was marrying up the physiological and the emotional benefits of yoga with something that was accessible to frontline workers and trying to just cut away all of the the woo-woo and all the unnecessary stuff so that that classes would be accessible to to soldiers, you know, police, fire, ambulance. And this is um, I guess, breaking down this, I guess to use a cliched term, toxic masculinity toxic masculinity about the way we look at ourselves and the way that we do things is I've got someone very dear to me who's just a, a rugged tradie and, you know, who was going through some terrible um, times with the, his own um, depression. And, you know, what, one of the things I always remember, and this is the thing about being in the army is I don't think we'd spoken to get for many years. 
yet out of the blue, I was able to ring you up and just say, Hey man, I've got, I've got this situation in my personal life. Can I ask you to reach out and, you know, and talk to this person and, uh, and without a he- second's hesitation, you know, even after probably not speaking for years, you know, you, you did that. And this person went and did yoga. Um, the big trough, big rough tradie came back just a different person. And again, it's this, um, not being bound by these, you know, stereotypes of what people think about who you are, what you're doing, but just being able to stop and breathe and move and stretch, um, it is. Uh, you you talked about the, the, the Kiwi weapon. This is something that um, you know augments and adds to our capability, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. Spiritually as well. Mm-hmm. So tell us about frontline yoga and and what where's it, what's the journey of this little? Uh, it's a non for profit. Yeah, yeah. So it's a health promotion charity. Yeah. That. Uh, you know, it started off as a membership association within New South Wales, but it's grown to become a national program. And I guess it what we do is we take uh, yoga teachers that want to work with frontline workers, want to provide yoga to them, and we give them uh, not only a, a cultural awareness, but also an awareness of what's happening happening neurobiologically as a result of trauma or occupational stress. So we just really break down, you know, changes that can occur in the structure of the brain, chemical signatures in the body, the way that we're mobilised into that fight and flight response. Uh, we explain some of the behaviours that can result uh, from trauma experiences and make it tangible. So it's, it's really all about... Um, understanding that there's these changes that have occurred within the brain and we know enough about neuroplasticity to know with the the correct inputs the right type of yoga the right type of activities breathing you can actually reverse some of those changes and you can come out the other side of it more resilient so there's that the recovery from trauma is one part of it and that's how we really started but then it's all about performance optimization as well. So by doing the right type of yoga and breath, you're taking the body physically from this sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system where you can grow health, growth and restoration hormones. You're helping to facilitate the activation of the prefrontal cortex, the decision-making logical part of the brain so it's it's also creating optimal conditions for good decision making and clear communication skills which is something that if you're in a high stress environment you know you might be responding to a fire you could be out on the street as a a police officer you know it's about being able to stay present in the prefrontal cortex so that you're making logical decisions rather than responding in a way that's well not even a response but a reaction to threat stimulus and we've you know we've seen stuff in the media very recently where it could be a result of just being overwhelmed by a situation making a bad decision and that has a flow-on effect with career family you know trust with the civilian population so it's, we could spend all day talking about this stuff. 
Man, I just want to share my little experience with yoga is I recently went on, so I'd never done yoga before, apart from in the pandemic, um, watching a couple of uh, yoga with Adrienne videos. Uh, Highly recommended. Yeah, really she's, good quality. She's amazing. But like, basically, I, I did probably now one or two of them on the, on the lounge room floor and just basically with my wife and just didn't get into it. But uh, I recently um, self-indulged and spent uh, two weeks in Thailand doing a Muay Thai, re- Muay Thai retreat. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm in my uh, later 40s, um, got a couple too many kilos on, and I really wanted to push myself and challenge myself because I hadn't really had that since the military, something that's bold, physical, um, confronting, and really challenging. And, and the training um, of the Muay Thai was about four hours a day, but as part of the program, there was an hour of yoga and an hour of massage. So I'd never, I'd literally never done yoga before. And in my first, um, my first class, it's probably the longest I've been in the presence of another person and not spoken. And that was a bit strange for me. I was just like, it's like I literally, and then, and I remember at the very end of the class, when you do sort of a bit of a wind down, I'm not sure what it's called or just lying on my back. And I was lying there for so long with my eyes closed. I was actually like, has this dude actually just like the instructor just left and walked away? And then maybe I was like, I was literally lying there going, is this some kind of test that I'm supposed to like, when the right time to get up will be my right time. And I'll end up being here for hours. And then you know, seconds later, he's like, Hey, you know, just come back up, come back into the room and sit down. And, and I was just like, I really, really enjoyed it. And then I did the seven days in a row twice a day or whenever I, whenever I could go, I turned up. And one of the big things that I really enjoyed about um, the practice of yoga was the word practice. And as part of the, as part of the, I don't know whether you call it a meditation or whatever, or, or the guided instruction, uh, it really became apparent to me that this is a practice, something yeah. that you do regularly to get better. And just in that one week, um, from me being way, way, way off touching my toes to being able to flick my big toe, you know, like there was dramatic improvements in just one week. And what are the other really big shock for me is that apart from doing the four hours a day of really challenging physical kickboxing is I, the next day I was good to go again. Yeah. Um, I wasn't lactic. I wasn't tired. I wasn't, um, I could literally train like come back every single day and train hard every single day. So um, just, my de- I've got to say, so that what you're describing is fantastic. And it's the, it's the habitual practice yeah. that makes a difference. And if I link it back to the experience of being a recruit instructor, Kapuka, or going through third class at RMC, is that when you do the initial action, so a shot rings out, you know, you're being shot at by the enemy, you go through run down, crawl, observe, aim, fire, run down, crawl, observe, aim, fire, and you do it over and over and over and over. And what's happening is that what what is first conscious, what you need to think about, then goes into the cerebellum. So it goes into the seat of the unconscious and becomes muscle memory so that when you're in combat, if a shot rings out, you don't think about it at all. It happens instantly. You run, you hit the deck, you crawl, 
you observe, you aim, and you fire. And when you do the habitual practice of yoga, breathing, meditation, what you're doing is you're putting these blueprints for stress management into your cerebellum so that when you are faced with a situation that is stressful, confronting, overwhelming, you're able to draw on that reserve of habitual practice to get you through that moment. So you can't just do a yoga to manage your stress. It's the practice of yoga in advance that helps inoculate you from stress. That word practice, yeah, it really stuck to me. And there was, even though I was on this camp, I, uh, I was working at the same time. And I remember one time having a really stressful phone call just before the yoga session. And I actually walked into there pumped, you know, like, you know, heart racing. And I remember the instructor saying, take a moment to think of what you want out of this practice, out of this next hour. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I was just like, I'd just like to see if I can just release some of this, you know, tension that I literally brought into the class. And in the first couple of minutes, I couldn't let it go. But then I got to the point where I sort of had to mentally slap myself and say, dude, this is a, you've got an hour here that nothing else matters, but just nothing's going to change for this hour. So just, just let go into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the end of that hour, I was more functional. I was clear and I was able to prioritize the issues that were going on and immediately go back and deal with them rather than just sitting in this, in this spin. Um, My biggest thoughts when I reflect on my very humble and, uh, new experience to yoga is where have you been all my life? Oh yeah, that's it. (laughs) Like seriously, man, like I am, I have for so many years had back pain, been unflexible, barely touched my toes, uh, you know, and, and I've just been like craving the ability to move, um, let alone the breathe and the calm bit. But in my very uh, like, again, new experience, uh, this is what, this is what I'm feeling now is like, um, where have you been? Where have you been all my life? Now, what's great about so yoga is different to many people, and a lot of people want that you know, spiritual, peaceful side of it. But frontline is a bit more of a let's call it a secular kind of uh, way yep. that you can practice, get what you want out of it in a is secular the right term? You know, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's certainly not um, you know a, a belief system. You know, there are philosophical aspects that people might choose to get into. And really that's about understanding sort of who you are and why you're here. And I think some of the, the, the most helpful elements of that, um, and it actually came from my dad before he passed away, is that it's talking about the challenges of thoughts post-Afghanistan. And he said to me, uh, he goes, I'm not my body. I'm not my thoughts. I have a body. I have thoughts. Uh, And if that's the only philosophical sort of takeaway from yoga, it can help separate you from those ruminations that that can really occupy your mind and take you away from being productive. But physically, there's some things that happen when you are uh, faced with a stress response. Your hip flexors shorten. So hip flexors that connect your L1 through to L5, your lumbar spine, to your femur that allow your hips to flex so that you can either run or fight. So under stress or trauma, 
they shorten. So that puts strain on the lower back. So massive issue in frontline professions with lower back pain. It's got very little to do with poor lifting techniques, a lot to do with chronic stress. And then also shoulders. So we naturally elevate and round the shoulders to protect the vital signs when you're in that fight and flight, when you're in chronic stress. And what that does is it gets your your rotator cuff, you know, the tendons through your rotator cuff, they run off the bursas. So then you're faced with shoulder pain, bursitis, arthritis, and you get that inflammation. So in a frontline yoga class, we're creating optimal conditions where we're not triggering stress in people, but then also reversing some of those physiological changes that occur as a result of stress. Yeah. Man, I, I got to, my back pain, there's been times where I've been like just chronic back pain. Um, the, the changes that I've had is, is so dramatic. So, and again, because I've got young boys, what I'm now really looking forward to is me in my 50s and my 60s. What kind of dad am I going to be to teenagers in this body that I've got to be a good active soccer footy kind of dad when my lads are teens and I still want to you know, be able to rumble and wrestle with them? Yep. Um, mate. I'm going, to, I'm going to come back shortly to how we get in touch and find out about frontline yoga, but tell us about Chris and what you're doing um, outside of this. You work with a pretty amazing veteran-founded business. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in your professional life? Yeah. yeah so I currently run uh, virtual health for Aspa Medical, and it was about three, just over three years ago that I joined the team there. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, they needed project managers, so I jumped in and started doing telehealth. And look, I'll be honest, I, I was apprehensive about going back into an em, employment sort of environment, going into a role like that. Uh, I'd, I'd left the military uh, with post-traumatic stress, depression. Um, I was on uh, a rehab program for many years and I was sort of using yoga as a tool to get to know myself, understand what was happening within my brain, my body, you know, why I was responding in the way that I was and, and then correcting all of that. So that, that process took nearly three years, uh, four years. And then when I got the call, the opportunity to go and do this work at the start of the pandemic, working with a whole bunch of great nurses, uh, I thought to myself, you know, this is a real opportunity to test the efficacy of yoga. Everything that I've been talking about with frontline yoga and how it's going to improve your performance and decision-making, your ability to communicate, all of that, I uh, had a real opportunity to test it out. And look, that first year with Aspen Medical, they were, they were being pumped with uh, government contracts and responding to the pandemic um, going to some pretty hairy situations. And it was a lot like being on operations. You know, we ran a 24 7 um, clinical call center. And at our peak, we we're getting 14,000 calls a week. Uh, we had, you know, 850 nurses doing telehealth around Australia and just needing to coordinate their rosters and their pay and train them and all of that sort of stuff. It was, uh, was phenomenal. You know, the only benefit, I guess, that was different to being on deployment is I got to go home and sleep in my own bed at night. 
and I slept soundly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, you know, professionally and testing myself with cognitive capacity, uh, working with Asper Medical has certainly done that. And then physically, uh, I had the opportunity. It's you know, interesting you talk about Muay Thai. Uh, I had the opportunity to do some training in mixed martial arts and then uh, jump into a cage and have a cage fight about 18 months ago and yoga helped you know not only being just sort of recovering well physically but mentally you know every time you think about stepping into the cage and facing somebody that wants to knock your head off it's natural for the brain to send the body into that stress response into fight and flight so having the practice of yoga mindfulness helped me not to burn up energy every time I thought about the fight and save it until I got into the cage. And, uh, yeah, it was a, a real test of, you know, how well yoga helps. And yeah, I can say that if you're a fighter or if you're, you know, a high flyer in any career, then finding some sort of contemplative practice doesn't necessarily have to be yoga but something that's slow and mindful where you're not forcing your body to produce more stress hormones, you're giving your body the ability to rest and recover, you know, it just takes you to a new level. Man, I always do things a little bit late in life. Like uh, I didn't join the army till I was 30, didn't get into business until I was 40, had kids in my early 40s, but I've taken on, you know, boxing and Muay Thai now in my late 40s. Um, and I've got to admit though, again, I wish I'd done it 20 years ago. I've, I've virtually never had a fight in my life, mate. I've never been someone to gets in a fight at the pub, but the physical challenge now of being able to jump in the ring, ring and spar with people and, and have to think and, and, and basically constantly test and improve. Um, the desire now that I want to get fit, I really want to get healthy and work, which relates to choices around, you know, diet and now again, alcohol challenges, how I'm sort of, Sometimes it makes me want to drink a little bit less because I want to get up and train in the morning. Mm. Um, and then the combination of yoga in that has been just game changing for me in the last six months since I took on this practice about being a more productive person, a fitter, healthier person, hopefully a better dad, better husband, better mate. But I just can't encourage anyone out there like veterans or not to give, give it a crack, like cut, in, cut all the bullshit, what you think about it and just give it a go. So Mate, can you tell us about um, how do we, if you want to learn about frontline yoga, you want to get involved in frontline yoga, uh, give us the wrap. Yeah, so we've got a website, frontlineyoga.com.au. Uh, there is a schedule of classes on there. So we have some uh, program face-to-face, uh, but we also offer virtual classes so you can tune in from anywhere around Australia or the world. Uh, if you're interested in training, so if you've got a yoga practice, you want to become a teacher, we're actually running our second frontline yoga teacher training out of the Byron Yoga Centre, uh, and that's the 7th to the 18th of August this year. So the the link for booking is on the Frontline Yoga website and on our socials uh, on Instagram and, and Facebook. So yeah, check it out. Well, mate, I've got a bit, my downward dog at the moment is a little bit more like a perverted plank, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's all part of the practice, mate. It's, it's practice. Yeah. It's all part of the practice. Well, mate, first of all, I just want to say um, th- thanks for coming on and 
number one, you know, you and your team, uh, the bravery that you all demonstrated all those years ago in that faraway place um, needs to be recognized, but also your bravery for coming on and sharing your story today is not to be um, underestimated. And um, it's humbling to me, man, just to, just to hear and uh, be able to tell your story and share your experience. So mate, thanks very much for, for joining us today on Military Mindset for Business Pod. Oh, thanks for having me, Pete. Always a pleasure to chat. A pleasure. Um, I'm going to put Chris's uh, LinkedIn, uh, you know, link in the notes. So that's an easy way to just uh, touch base and see what he's doing in the world and make a connection if you can. Otherwise, jump on uh, also the Frontline Yoga website will be there. Uh, thanks very much, mate. You take care and we'll talk soon. Will do. See ya. This is Pete Liston, out.